Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. One of you beforehand approached me and said, you know, what's up with the stuff happening with repetition, with the act, um, and with sublimation toward the, um, the, the second part of our readings for, uh, for today? Um, it just so happens that, that were, those are some of the topics that I precisely want to discuss um, with you. So, and I want to do this through um, a close reading of some passages. So, not much of this is going to be review, but what it is going to do is to put us in touch with a very foundational, according to Lacan, the basic foundational move that psychoanalysis makes around the topic of repetition, and by extension, retroaction. In 14, the fun begins on page 48. And I want to make sure that when I say page 48, you know exactly what we're looking at here, because there is no official English translation of this text. The translation I'm working with is the one from Lacan in Ireland, but be careful because I've heard there are a couple different ones like that out there. It's the one linked in our Substack through the registration page for this series on seminar 14. If you go there on pay and you turn to page 48, what you see is something that looks like this. So you can compare this, look for those X's because it's right beneath those X's on page 48 of the translation we're working with um, that we wanna begin to crack this nut of repetition that is so fundamental to psychoanalytic theory and technique. Um, as you know, in our series on seminar 11, toward the start where Lacan is defining the unconscious, repetition is a big topic. And it's one that we've addressed fully there, especially around the topic of repression. Notice how it pops up here. The paragraph begins, as you know, I give great importance to this structure insofar it is fundamental to explain the structure of the unconscious. This will all become clear as we go. In the meantime, bear with me and let's read these passages together from seminar 14. Namely, that in the moment considered as primary, original, in repression, it is a matter, I say, since this is the mode of presenting it that is proper to me, it is a matter, I say, of an effect of signifying substitution at the origin. When I say at the origin, what is at stake is a logical origin and not anything else. Whenever Lacan talks about a logical origin, think of this as in the Benjaminian sense of origin versus genesis. Origin is something that is retroactively, retrospectively designated from a moment that at the point of that origin was still to come. Logical time for Lacan is retroactive time. 
chronological time deals not with the chirotic moment of meaning making retrospectively, but with the chronos, to use the other Greek term, the chronos of time as it unfolds linearly the way words in a sentence or notes in a melody unfold. That's not logical time. That's one, two, three, four, five, that sequential, chronological, highly modern conception of time, which properly speaking didn't really even exist until the 18th century. Lacan is here thinking of a different approach to origins, not origins as point one relative to point three, but in fact, a point one or a point zero, a ground zero, that at the time of its grounding, of its pointing, knew nothing of the fact. Only afterwards, as the sequence has developed, can you look back retrospectively and see where it began. That's what he means by logical origin. And the way he's representing this is to bring up the topic of repression. Now, if you want to see our model of repression, you can check it on Instagram. It's all over our Substack. It's in our last series. Um, we don't need to rehearse it here, although it might be useful. Let's see if it becomes necessary. Reading on. What is substituted has an effect that the penchance of the tongue, as one might say, in French, allows us can allow us to express immediately in a very lively fashion. The substitute has an has as effect to substituate what it substitutes for, to substitute, to position under. What is found, and don't forget, psychoanalysis, as we discovered in seminar 11, does not seek, it finds. And every discovery it makes is always a rediscovery. What is found because of this substitution in the position that is believed, that is imagined, that is even made part of the doctrine, very wrongly as it happens, to be effaced is simply substituted, which is the way that today I will translate, because it seems to me particularly practical, Freud's Unterdrückt, which just means like oppression, suppression, to quell even is another way that you might understand this. This is important here. Logical origins are retroactive. They're not chronological, even though they involve sequential, linear, diachronic unfoldings. They're retroactive in the same way that the repressed is a logical origin of its return and always the flip side of the same coin. And with that said, I do think it might make sense to just map this out real quick. So we'll go to share screen here. You can see some of the work of the discussion we were just having before the lecture resumed. Um, and we can also now clear the space and do a quick little rundown, um, a mapping, a topology of Lacan's theory of repression as it is marked by this theory of logical origins, which are gonna become very important here. So here we have time unfolding, and then all of a sudden, whoa, some shit occurs. Think trauma, think car crash, think potty training, think whatever the hell you want. There is a primal scene of sorts that causes a blip or a bump or an opening 
in the logical flowing of time, chronological, of lived experience as it unfolds from one moment to the next. Now, what happens in a moment of trauma, according to Lacan, is that some figure of that trauma gets repressed. And it's not the whole event. It's not every aspect of the potty training experience that was so horrible when you wet your pants beyond what your mom thought you should have been doing and locked you in the bathroom. It would be some aspect of the bathroom. It might be, for instance, the smell of the soap on the counter. That would be the part that you repressed, or the feeling of wet clothing to your skin. That might be the part of the entire event that you would repress. So this is a traumatic event. And you would repress some part of it. In other words, a signifier. The unconscious is structured like a language in part because it's full of signifiers, representations of, in this case, a traumatic event. And these signifiers continue along just as your life continued along until that pool party. You know the pool party I'm talking about? The one where your friend thought it would be really hilarious to push you in, push you into the water. And damn, the horror of feeling your clothes stuck to your skin. In that moment, the feeling of your clothes stuck to your skin is a symptom. Another signifier that has somehow connected up with the X's, Y's, and Z's of the unconscious. And now you don't just feel wet and embarrassed because you got pushed in. You feel absolutely horrified because in fact, if you had ears to hear and eyes to see, you would realize that you feel so horribly because that feeling of being wet after being thrown in the pool is also resonant with and resurrective of the previous trauma of being locked in the bathroom because you wet your pants past the point when your mom thought you should. This return of the repressed is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to reflect retroactively and to come up with some sort of a meaning that explains why you felt so damn awful in that moment. It wasn't just that you were wet and embarrassed. It was more than that. You were extra upset. This retro active connection is one in which meaning is made. And if you know what I'm talking about here, Notice the similarity. This is just the basic elemental graph 
of desire that Lacan develops in the 1960s, ultimately culminating in the profound, elaborate graph of desire. The same logic is at play here. It's also what you see him doing with language and meaning making in the, um, in the 50s as well. This same structure permeates a lot of Lacan's thought. And it's one that is also going to give us the button ties that people like to talk about from the 50s. That's here as well. This is a buttoning of meaning synchronically across diachronically disparate moments in time. Now we've worked through all this elsewhere, so I'm not gonna spend much more time on it. I just want to show you though, that the origin of your sick feeling here is not exactly chronological. It's more of a logical origin that you would arrive at retroactively via this wormhole of insight that would precisely come up in analysis. In other words, it would be difficult for you to crawl out of that pool feeling wet, disgusted, embarrassed, but also way more than all of that, and immediately be like, this reminds me of, I know why I'm upset. This is like when I got locked in the bathroom after pissing my pants and mommy was upset. You ain't going to have that insight in that moment. You're going to do something crazy. You might grab the other person, throw them in the pool. And who knows, that could be the beginning of the best pool party y'all ever been to. I've been to that pool party too. That's a fun one. This though is probably not going to be the moment of insight. The moment of insight is probably going to come later when you're on the couch. In fact, what is more than likely to occur in that moment is you're going to shrug it off, pretend like you're not that upset, laugh about it to um, hold the embarrassment at bay. In other words, you're just going to get over this speed bump as best you can. Hopefully, you'll come back and be able to make the connection to this earlier primal scene that caused the repression, that allowed for the return of the repressed and so forth. Because if you don't, just wait until the next time you find some clothing stuck to your skin. That's what happens. If you don't make this pink retroactive synchronic assignment of meaning, you're destined to repeat. A mistake is an experience that hasn't yet transformed into a lesson. The pink arrow here marks the lesson that comes from the accident. If you don't derive a lesson from the accident, you're destined to keep having it. And here, of course, I mean the accident of falling in the pool and the one that, according to your mom, was the reason you got thrown into the bathroom, which, of course, is not the reason she threw you into the bathroom. She herself may have need of a couch. But here's what's popping on 48. What we're getting at here is a theory of retroactive meaning-making and also some way of understanding the relationship between two events. What we're after here is a nascent theory of repetition. Repetition is what we're after here. The return of the repressed is in many ways a repetition of sorts. What kind of repetition that is, we're going to get there. Blast forward in this lovely 
English translation to page 106. If your 106 looks like my 106, the first words on the page are point and Freud. Page 106 is nice because it gives us a theory of the unconscious as the great object of study in psychoanalysis. <clears throat> and it points us in the direction of repetition, not as an object, but as an operation. The object of psychoanalysis is the unconscious, and it is in very many ways structured as an opening, which I emphasize. And repetition is very much the operation that we see when the unconscious starts firing. I would also add, just to be elusive, it's a repetition in the real. Okay. Top of page 106. Now that you found the passage, the paragraph begins, if Freud retains our interest. If Freud retains our interest, it is not because of what he thought as an individual at one or other detour of his effective life. What interests us is not Freud's thinking. It is the object that he discovered. This object, of course, is the unconscious. Scroll down a little bit more on page 106 of seminar 14. What is research? Nothing other, undoubtedly, than what we can ground as being the radical origin of Freud's approach concerning his object. Nothing else can give it to us than what appears to be the irreducible starting point of the Freudian novelty, namely repetition. So the object is the unconscious and the starting point for understanding it is a logic and operativity of repetition. Or indeed, this research is itself in a way repeated by the question which gives rise to what I will call our relationships. Namely, what is involved in a teaching which supposes that there are subjects for whom the new status of the subject, which the Freudian object implies, is realized? In other words, which supposes that there are analysts? So the Freudian object presumes a whole host of subjects one of whom is the analyst, namely subjects who can sustain in themselves something which gets as close as possible to this new status of the subject, the one which the existence and the discovery of the Freudian object determines, subjects who will be the ones who are up to the following, up to the following, in other words, up to the task, to the challenge that the other, the traditional big other, does not exist. And that nevertheless, there is indeed bedeutung. From Frege's work here, we just mean sense, meaning. Um, Lacan is thinking structure. Fancy German word for sense, meaning, but really what he's working on here, not just the reference to Frege, but he's talking about structure here. An analyst is somebody who is up to the task, to the challenge in a way that the analyzand very rarely is not at the start of analysis of realizing that the other, the traditional big other, as whole, as complete, as total, doesn't exist and in fact is barred. The key question here is, what is the structure of the other as barred, as lacking? 
Now, what we said last time was that it amounts to a container of thing contained logic. A container cannot be among its contents. That's what we were working with here. And oh, okay, that's the structural logic of the lack and the other. There is no other of the other because containers cannot be among their own contents. There's no container for the container that purports to contain everything as the symbolic and the big other view. This bedoitung for all those who have followed me enough up to now that for them, the words that I employ, I am saying that I employ, have a sense, this bedoitung, let it be enough for me to pinpoint it here by something which has no other name than the following, the structure insofar as it is real. So reviewing what we have here. The analyst's job is to hold in mind what the fundamental fantasy prevents the analyzant from having at the start of analysis, which is that the big other, the traditional big other as whole, complete, total, does not exist. And yet there is still something structural at the level of language, meaning. And this structure is real. And then he's down to the Mobius strip, cut in two, and it's a median cut he has in mind here. Imagine a Mobius strip, and you don't snip it so that the thing comes unfurled. You cut it along its surface in half and see what the results are. When you cut a Mobius strip in half along its median, Lacan is noting here, this is basic like topology here. When you cut it in half, it does not result in division. The Mobius strip does not come apart. It reduplicates. Do it. Make a Mobius strip and make that median cut and you'll see. Now there's not two, now there's not one loop, but two. One wraparound, so characteristic of the Mobius strip. And then again, Lacan reiterates, the structure is something which is like that. It's real. The structure that Lacan is referring to here, this bidoitan, is real because it is necessarily excluded from the system of signifiers that it supports, that it instantiates, namely the symbolic. So we're back at that same structural logic of container and thing contained. Whatever is rejected, foreclosed in the field of the symbolic is going to pop up again in the experience of the real. Lacan has been saying this since seminar three. We just haven't had ears to hear it. The real is an effect structure of the symbolic. It's through the symbolic process of rejection. And I'm like Lacan, I wanna use the word foreclosure here. The same thing that would produce psychosis. What is foreclosed in the field of the symbolic is what's going to pop up in our encounters with the real. And what is foreclosed or rejected from the symbolic is the counting mechanism that operates whenever it purports to capture, I don't know, every word in the language. Its totalizing efforts preclude those mechanisms, those operations of totalization, sending them out. 
and thus casting them into the real. That's partly what Lacan is getting at here. The structure is real because it is ejected from the collection of signifiers at the level of the symbolic that it supports, which is why I say that this additional one, this one too many, it's not just extimate to, cast out of, but also integrated into the symbolic. It is also the condition of possibility for symbolic. This is the bag that contains all those dicks. This is the box that contains the cereal, jewelry, and the like. The structuring agent that enables the container designates it and also is ejected from it is real for this reason. Lacan then shifts to talking about structural substance, and I'll let you see where he goes with that. The first thing we want to note here is this connection between the unconscious object that Freud discovers and the operation of repetition that is relevant to it. And I'm acutely aware of the fact that we are still looking at the image of repression here. Now, forward a little more to 110. My goal, as you know, is to offer a clear, coherent commentary on this text to help you read it. Page 110 is where it starts getting really good. In order to work with the unconscious, we have to start with a fringe. Top of 110, I am speaking about what is a fringe. There is nevertheless a step to be taken before recognizing in it the trait of the animated, for thinking as we understand it is not animated. It is the effect of the signifier, namely in the last resort, the trace. The fringe, the trace. Let's see what he's up to here. What is called structure is that we follow thinking by its trace and by nothing else, because the trace has always caused thinking. So here again, remember the work we were doing with Lacan's correction to Descartes. Traces cause thoughts, but thoughts as self-conscious, ego-driven enterprises always mask this trace by misrecognizing its relationship to and in it. That's partly what Lacan's getting at here. The relation of this procedure to psychoanalysis can be immediately sensed, provided one can imagine it, or indeed has experience of it. I don't know about sensing this immediately, but we're starting to come close to an imagination of it. Here we go. That Freud inventing psychoanalysis is the introduction of a method of detecting a trace of thinking, where thinking itself masks it by recognizing itself differently in it, differently to the way that the trace designates it. And then toward the bottom, the key question here. How does it happen that analytic knowledge comes to pass into the real? Here we have another passage into the real. The path through which what I am teaching passes into the real is none other, bizarrely, than the farewell phone, rejection, foreclosure, than the effective rejection that we see happening at a certain level of the generation of the position of the psychoanalyst, insofar as it wants to know nothing 
about what is nevertheless his only and unique knowledge. You've seen this before. If you've seen our lectures on seminar three, you know about this subject who wants to know nothing about it. This rejection, this foreclosure, um, is also the operation that yields psychosis for Lacan. And you can see this in seminar three. What is rejected in the symbolic ought to be focused in the subjective field somewhere in order to reappear at a correlative level in the real. There it is again. What is ejected from the symbolic will reappear, and I hesitate to put re in front of appear, in the real. Where? Here, no doubt. What does that mean? It is what touches you here, namely, this point which is the one to which witness is born by what the journalists have already located under the label of, quote, structuralism, and which is nothing other than your interest, the interest that you take in what is said here, an interest which is real. Naturally, among you, there are psychoanalysts. There is, it is already here a generation of psychoanalysts in which there will be incarnated the correct position of the subject insofar as it is required by the analytic act. And now for the person who queued up the question of repetition, act, sublimation, you're starting to get at it. The analytic act is real. And according to Lacan's greatest inheritor, Alain Badiou, this is what separates psychoanalysis from philosophy, in part because there is this act, this event, that happens known as psychoanalysis. You actually show up and talk to a motherfucker about stuff. The analytic act is real, which is why psychoanalysis can never be subsumed fully in the discipline of philosophy no matter how many times Lacan tries to sweep the knees of René Johnny Descartes. When this generation has come to maturity, you will measure the distance traveled by reading the unthinkable things printed luckily so that they will be able to bear witness for anyone who knows who to read and probably how to read from which it will have been necessary to extract the outline that this realization of analysis requires. I wonder if here on February 15, 1967, Lacan is indeed imagining November 16, 2022. But it's a relevant passage because it puts us in correspondence with the real. And that is also what these traces are. Trauma is real, even if it suffers repression only at the level of signification. We were on page 110, and now I want to turn forward one more to 111, the bottom of the page. We're reading the key sections from seminar 14. The paragraph begins, in truth. Lacan has just been talking about death and life. And what he wants to say here is that life is not the totality of forces that resist death. He wants to say something else. Life is the totality of forces in which there is signified that death will be for life its rail, 
And then he gives us the paragraph that's relevant for us. Death is the rail of life. I love it. In truth, this would not take us very far, Lacan says at the bottom of page 111. If it were not a matter of something other than the being of life, what we can in a first approach call its sense, namely something that we can read in signs which come from an apparent vital spontaneity since the subject does not recognize himself in it, but where it is necessary that there should be a subject since what is in question could not be a simple effect of the dot, dot, dot fallout, as one might say, of the vital bubble which bursts, leaving the place in the state in which one might say, I'm sorry, in which it was previously, but of something which everywhere we follow it is formulated not as the simple return, but as a thinking of return, as repetition thinking. Now, I chose to read this paragraph because it gives us some insight in how one might go about engaging in the analytic act participating in analytic experience through repetition thinking, or you might even say through a thinking of repetition. That's what we're after here. Somehow this is gonna connect to what's going on with the logic of fantasy. I don't know that we'll get there in this lecture, but by God, we're gonna come as close as possible. This repetition thinking is what Lacan is up to. And you can go forward on page 112, and you get a lot of it there as well. Middle of the page, repetition is not memory. It's something quite different. If we make of repetition the directive principle of a field, insofar as it is properly subjective, we cannot fail to formulate what unites in material, in the style of a copula, the identical and the different. This imposes on us again to this end, the use of this unary trait. Uh-oh, there's that word again. <clears throat> whose elective function we have recognized in connection with identification. Now Lacan back on the rail he was working on in the first part of the seminar. I will recall what is essential to it in simple terms. Having been able to experience that such a simple function appears astonishing in the context of philosophers or supposed ones, as I recently happened to have had the experience of, and that people found obscure, even opaque, this very simple remark that the unary trait plays the role of symbolic reference point, precisely by excluding <clears throat> that it should be neither similarity nor the difference which are posited at the principle of differentiation. The unary trait is something that is very difficult to pin down because it eludes logics of difference and similarity. Now, I don't think he needs to go all there just to say what he's trying to say, <clears throat> but it is what he said. And so it's what we're reading here. Next paragraph. I already here sufficiently underlined the use of the one which is this one that I distinguish from the unifying one because of being the countable one, is to be able to function, to designate as so much one, such heteroclite objects of thought as a thought, a veil, or another object that is here within our reach. And since I enumerate, enumerated three, to count that three, count to three, 
namely to hold as null even in their most extreme difference of a nature to establish their differentiation as something else. Here is what gives us the function of number and everything that is established upon the, the operation of recurrence. <clears throat> At this point, it's not clear what Lacan is up to. He's got this notion of a unary trait that somehow escapes the counting mechanism and thus allows it to function as this un, this one, <clears throat> this one too many. And then on page 113, we get the big shift, which is extremely helpful and probably overdue. Were I in the audience at this point, I would probably think it's about fucking time. And that's exactly where he goes into the field of time. But if we descend, as I might say, into time, and remember, it's not chronological time that we're thinking about here. We're thinking about chirotic, logical, retroactive time. When Lacan says, let's descend into time, he means like, let's think about time in a more rigorous, properly psychoanalytic way, which is what is demanded of you today in order to take up the identificatory scheme of alienation and see how it functions. And in seeing how it functions, how it undergirds the logic of fantasy. We will remark that the basic one of the operation of recurrence is not already there. It is only established from repetition itself. <clears throat> Remember, retroaction is the theory of time we have here. It's only in the process of repetition that the thing that was to be repeated reveals its mark in the system as repeatable and so forth. And you can think about this too in terms of our definition of objet. In order for there to be a single entity on which we can focus, here's that pen again, you have to be able to count to three first. There's the foreground in which the pen appears, there's the background of the white wall, and then there's the minimum irreducible distance, the line that separates the black pen from the white wall. That third element, difficult to count, is OBJA, the minimum irreducible distance between two entities that allows them to appear distinct. That's also part of the same counting game that Lacan is saying, because in order to have one entity to focus on, you have to first count to three. You might also think about this in terms of castration and that minus feed and the metaphor that I've been using here of incision. The proof of the incision is not the act of cutting, it's the opening that is left behind. The wound is the testament to the accident. These are the types of thought processes Lacan is hoping that his audience will engage in. And then he's got some bit about the pleasure principle. Forget about it. Middle of the page, 113. A situation which is repeated. And here we get into the conceptual heavy stuff. So hang tight. A situation which is repeated as a failure situation, for example. But you can imagine any situation that's repeated, like walking down the same street that you walked down yesterday. 
implies coordinates not of the greater or lesser tension, referring back to his stuff on the pleasure principle, but of signifying identity of plus or minus as sign of what must be repeated. But here's the catch. This sign was not carried as such by the first situation. In other words, the street that you walked down yesterday and the experience of walking down that street did not carry with it. It was not a signifier of its repetition today when you walk down the same street again. It was not at the time yesterday part of the repetitive process. It's only by walking down the same street again that you take that earlier moment and retroactively draw it into a repetitive operation. It was not part of repetition until you did it a second time. This sign was not carried as such by the first situation. You should clearly understand that this was not marked by the sign of repetition. Otherwise, it would have been the first. Lacan is just himself flabbergasted by that, but it's not. The truth is walking down the street yesterday comes second to walking down the street today because it is a retroactively inscribed origin, a logical origin of the repetitive operation of you walking down the same street today. When you walked down the street yesterday, it was not the origin of a repetition, even if you had planned it. That's not how repetition works. Repetition works retroactively, the same way that meaning in psychoanalysis is made. That's why it's relevant here, y'all. <clears throat> much more, and here he's going to say much more, it must be said that it becomes, that it becomes, and it becomes only retroactively, the repeated situation, and that by that fact, it is lost as the originating situation, that there is something lost by the fact of repetition. You walked down the street yesterday. You had a regular walk. It was no big deal. In the night, there's an earthquake. I live in San Francisco. What are you going to do? There's an earthquake, and the sidewalk is now cracked in a million ways that wasn't there before. Now, suddenly, the experience that you had of walking down this beautifully paved sidewalk yesterday becomes wildly significant, significant in a totally new way. But note, in this case, that perfectly paved sidewalk is also gone. You didn't know how significant it was in its perfect paving until that shit was completely torn asunder by an earthquake. It's in hindsight that it is experienced and is experienced notably as something lost. That's why I'm sticking with this example because it literally illustrates something that is lost. The perfect paving is now cracked and split by the earthquake. The originating situation is determined after the fact. So you see this in psychoanalytic experience as well. The analyzand didn't realize how important that particular historical event was in their past until 20 years later, they realized, oh my God, that's why I have trouble when skin and wet fabric come into contact with each other. I didn't realize how significant that primal scene of being locked in the bathroom with my wet jeans 
was until now, later after being thrown in the pool and murdering three people because I didn't know what was going on, I lost my mind. Wow, I could see now why I was so upset. I speak archly, but trying to make this point here. And this is not alone perfectly articulated in Freud, but he articulated it well before having been brought to this statement of repetition in Beyond the Pleasure Principle. <clears throat> and then we get to the bit on rediscovery, which is always what it means to track in the unconscious, and on the drives, which also operate on a series of lost objects. And then primal repression, there's that Erfurdrangen. And then down at the bottom of the next paragraph, all of which is constitutive of the subject, namely repetition. Somehow, repetition is also constitutive of the subject, just as it is our lead point into the logic of fantasy. How were we to graph this? Well, take a look at the graph in front of you right now. The graph, as one might say of this function, I think you all have been passing the shape that I gave as an intuitive imaginative support of this topology of return. For it to solidify the part, this topology of return, which is just as important as its direct effect, as this effect that is itself imaged, namely its retroactive effect, what I call just now what happens when by effect being repeated, by the effect being repeated, what was to be repeated becomes repeated. Now, don't get too crazy about this. The graph that he is talking about is represented in more detail in the graph of repression here, but it's also here. The basic graph of meaning making and language use for Lacan is the graph that he's referring to here because it demonstrates a retroactive effect that in turn establishes a repetitive relationship. It's only in the field of the symptom that you can recognize this as a repetition of that. It's only after the fact that repetition can retroactively find its logical origin. This is one of the most fundamental insights of Lacanian psychoanalysis. It's stone cold in his 50s work, and now he's kind of just assuming that people have it. Obviously, he's going to develop it to crazy lengths in the graph of desire, which we've spent a lot of time discussing. Here, he's also assuming that you've got that shit under your belt. Of course, you know the topology of return to which I'm referring. It's worth noting here on the diagrams in front of you what he's working with here. Repetition is part and parcel of the retroactive resubjectivizing process of analytic technique. That was really Freud's great discovery. These are the pages to consider, I believe, in 714. And it just continues. 114 is a great one here. And he introduces once more the internal eight. The best way to wrap our heads around this is, first of all, to review our series on Seminar 11, where in the last couple of lectures, we focused a lot on this 
internal eight. Um, but it's also worth noting here because you know what? Not everybody could be there. The interior eight that starts popping up here, you can see the image on page 114. It looks something like this. The end of seminar 11, this really becomes a significant way of understanding how you can get the drive, how to pass from the field of demand to that of the drive. It's important there and it's important here, this double loop of, they have it translated as the inverted eight. And my understanding is that in Spanish translations of Lacan, it also pops up as the inverted eight. I prefer to think of it as an internal eight because what it has done is effectively taken the number eight and flipped the top part into the bottom part. So it's an internalized eight. It's not simply an inverted eight. It's not just an upside down eight. It's an internalized eight where the top loop has been folded into the bottom. And it's important for what we're up to here for reasons that we still have yet to arrive at. It seems to be the theme in seminar 14. You're working really hard on shit and it's not entirely clear how this is ever gonna get us to the topic of fantasy, but hang on. 114 in this seminar, this double loop, this inverted eight, this internal eight, which is much better, gives this retroactive effect, there it is again, that cannot be detached from it, which forces us to think out the third relation. Here again, a few lines down on page 114. From the one to the two, which constitutes the return, comes back in closing itself. From the one to the two, which constitutes the return, comes back in closing itself. From the one to the two, experiences of reading also sometimes duplicate what it is you're trying to understand. Towards this one, in order to give this non-numeral element that I am calling the additional one. Here it is again. The one too many. For the symbolic to handle, the additional one, this un that is marked by the unary trait, is non-numeral. That's why it's so difficult to count. It neither subscribes to logics of difference or similarity, nor does it succumb to logics of counting. The numeracy of this additional one is tricky, which is why you'll always hear from me that in Lacan and his math, one plus one is gonna equal three. There's something that defies, no matter how much he wants to mathematize psychoanalysis, any proper mathematics of psychoanalysis. At least one that wouldn't be um, fall under the acronym of fuzzy. This additional one is non-numeral. It is not reducible to the series of natural numbers. Neither additionable two nor subtracted from this one and from this two which succeed one another. Still, it deserves the title of this additional one, which I designated as essential for any signifying determination and which is always already moreover, not simply to appear, but to be grasped, fleeting, detectable in lived experience. Once the counting note the French here, subject has to count himself among the others. What is this third relation? 
that we're talking about here. We're at the end of our time today. So what I'm going to do is draw it for you. I want to show you rather than tell you. He's giving us this internal eight. And he's telling us that somehow it's related to this very familiar elemental graph of desire. And what I would suggest is that if you want to understand how he's getting the connection between these two, that you unfold the internal eight so that it now looks something more like a proper eight. Unfold the bottom loop, open it back up so that you now have a more proper number eight. And then what I would suggest is that you map this onto the elemental graph such that it looks something like this. Here is your primal scene, the same logic of repression and return that we just saw. Here is your symptom. Down here, if you're playing with the graph of desire in its primordial form, here's the subject of pure need and here's the barred subject. But this movement is essential to understanding the connection between the internal eight and the elemental graph of desire that models this retroactive move that you also see here. Here's what I'll suggest by way of closure. The primal scene is a one, but it doesn't come first in the one-two punch that is the return of the repressed. Point two is represented by the symptom, by the return of the repressed. Number three, this third relation that is non-numeral marked by an additional one, is the retro relationship represented oftentimes by OBJA, an uncountable additional one that marks two as a repetition of one and thus establishes their differential retroactive relation. There's your primal scene. There's your return of the repressed at the level of the symptom. And here is this nebulous third element, usually figured as obja, here marking a retroactive relationship of repetition that marks the second as a repetition of the first. It doesn't mean the first was part of the repetitive process. It's not until the symptom pops that the primal scene can be seen. And that in turn is a third move, a third element, this retroactive repetitive movement backwards. Repetition does not occur going forwards. It is a retroactive process, which relies not on origins that are chronological, but instead origins that are chirotic, synchronic, logical origins, as Lacan puts it here. Now, what is at stake 
in all of this talk of repetition around the topic of desire, around the topic of this seminar, fantasy. It comes to us on page 115, which is where we're going to leave off today. On this permanent downfall of the other. And the question that we leave with, the parting question is this, how do you reconcile what he's doing with the theory of repetition and retroaction with the fundamental fantasy? Namely, that the other is not whole, complete, and full, but in fact, that the other is divided, fragmented, and incomplete, that it is finite, just like us. Page 115 gives us a clue. The double loop that we see being worked out on these graphs in front of you at the level of repetition are connected to Lacan's argument that up to this point has been structural, that the other is always already barred. See what you can make of this between now and our next session. Stay tuned. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening to Lectures on Lacan. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music. 